Know my height and my. I'm Tim Wilson, and recently I was fortunate enough to moderate Maxim Institute's Conversation Night on COVID debt. Now, as you'll probably quickly appreciate, this is not the normal sound quality for a podcast. It was recorded live. The quality of what's being said, that's what I urge you to pay attention to. We've got no apologies for that. Without any further ado, let's get started. COVID has changed everything. Governments around the world have turned on the money pump, often throwing every fiscal tool they have at the COVID-19 shock. Borrowing money, printing money, lowering interest rates. The spectacle has been quite remarkable. Who would have believed that New Zealand house prices would go so high so quickly, hitting an average price of 780000 on the most recent review. House stock value increased by 200 billion in the year of COVID. Now to put that in context, our GDP is 322 billion. Who would have believed that luxury cars would be selling so plentifully? That spa pools in New Zealand would have one of their best years ever with one Nelson company growing by 400% in a year. Yet the spectre of debt looms. Our government debt in New Zealand is now 103 billion, or 32% of GDP. By 2025, it's expected to be around 190 billion, just under half of our GDP. And we're one of the good ones. The global debt to GDP ratio is currently 355%. That's gone up by 35 percentage points in a year, this year of COVID. By comparison, the GFC added 10 percentage points to the global debt mountain. So the world indebtedness levels are 355% of GDP. Should we be alarmed? Should we be buying houses? Should we be buying guns? Probably not, but we're here to answer those questions. We want to understand this better. We want to get behind the numbers to see what the numbers mean. How much debt do we have really? What might a recovery look like? And might it also look a bit like a crash? We'll get into that. Uh, and how is this debt mountain reshaping our society? Joining me to unpack these and other questions are Lyndon Drake and Julian Wood, and I'll introduce them for you. The Venerable Dr. Lyndon Drake uh, is uh, of Naitahu descent, and he serves as Archdeacon of Tamaki Makoro in the Māori Anglican Bishopric of Titai Tokoro. He's married to Miriam, who is here, and they have three children. Uh, until 2010, Lyndon was a Vice President at Barclays Capital trading, government bonds, and interest rate derivatives. Lyndon has degrees in science and commerce, a PhD in computer science, two degrees in theology, and a number of peer-reviewed academic publications in science and theology. He's the author of Capital Markets for the Common Good, a Christian Perspective. Put your hands together, please, for Lyndon. And Julian Wood is Senior Researcher at Maxim Institute, primarily a labour economist with a Master's in Social Science and a History of Strategic Labour Market Policy work. He's done work in uh, areas like minimum wages, migration and regional development. He's married to Alice and they have a lovely son, Theo. Uh, Julian's worked at the Department of Labour and also operated a farm in rural China. He's produced a wide range of research for Maxim Institute covering regional development migration and active labour market policies. He's currently examining modern forms of work, particularly in this era, and how these increasingly non-standard digital platform, we're talking Uber here, precarious work practices interface with the tax and welfare support systems. Put your hands together, please, for Julian. Three hundred and fifty-five percent of world GDP, that's the debt level. Lyndon, are you alarmed? Well, it depends a little bit 
on how you want to, to break that up. And in one sense, of course, this seems like an extraordinary amount of money, um, but it does depend a little bit on the form of the debt, and it also depends in the end on what that debt is spent on. Now, I was a trader, not an economist, and before I was, I was needling my, my friend here and saying that traders are economists whose jobs rely on predicting the future correctly. <laughs> And that's the first burn of the evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so happy to be able to get that in. It's all downhill from, from here for me. And I will defer to, to my much more expert friend on the exact breakdown here, but there's something significant when um, debt becomes unmanageable, but it really does depend to, to a great degree on who that debt has come from. So, for example, if I were to personally owe $355 billion, uh, 355% of world GDP, this would clearly be problematic. Um, and I haven't run up debts of that magnitude. Um, but there's also the possibility that if you're the government and you can create more of the money with which the debt will be repaid and can also compel people to repay the debt through taxation, um, there's an argument that perhaps that's not such a worrying situation to be in. There are some complexities to that though, and I'm, I'm sure Julian would like to break it down further. <laughs> Somebody said, I need that money tomorrow, um, the world would be in big, big, big trouble. Like, that's, that's the reality of the debt situation at the moment. But that's not what is going to happen. Um, and then you compare that to New Zealand where, you know, we, you've already said it was 32% uh, or 33% of GDP at the moment. I think it's 37% is core crown debt by the end of the year. I mean, that sounds like just an order of magnitude smaller. And it is. But I think... The thing that we've fooled ourselves in New Zealand is that, oh, we're great because we're at 37% or by 2025 we're only going to be at 47% or 48%. I think you need to look at, at debt in a different way and, and you need to look at public debt and private debt together as a debt envelope and I think that's where New Zealand starts to get a little bit more on shaky, sort of shaky ground and that's simply because the government's not the problem in New Zealand. The government, the core crown government debt is not the problem in New Zealand. Um, it's lauded the world over as being fantastic. We just got a AAA or AA rating because of it. The problem is private debt. So in the New Zealand situation, that's where we need to start our little sort of radars going beep, 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 there might be a problem here. So should we be worried? Um, potentially. And it might not actually, debt might not be the thing that causes the big problem. Um, I think there's, um, the way that debt's been created, I think is gonna have some some secondary impacts, and uh, I think inflation is one of those. We're, we're going to get to that uh, a bit later, but what is driving this private debt in New Zealand, Julian? Oh, it's access to cheap money, right? So, and it's not just cheap money from New Zealand, it's cheap money from the world over. So, um, yeah, I, I just think it's access to cheap money um, and interest rates falling. So, I think since the 1990s, the world over in lots of places, uh, the way we have controlled the economy is through the official cash rate or yeah, adjusting the interest rate. And so that's meant as, as the economy has struggled over time, we've continually lowered interest rates as a way of combating that. They haven't bounced back. Um, and so there's this idea of sort of secular stagnation, which is eventually you get to a point where interest rates just can't come back up um, and you get stagnation and low interest rates combining. So. Because you, you believe, Lyndon, that we're in a low interest rate environment that will persist for quite a while. Yeah, and that's, that's a view I've held for quite a while. So coming out of the financial crisis, um, which I, I was trading through, so I was quite um, uh, professionally involved in interest rates at the time. This is the uh, GFC, global, That's right, global yeah, financial the GFC. In England, it's called the financial crisis. New Zealand, it's called the GFC, and I always forget. <laughs> I, I, I'm now out of place in my own country. Um, coming out of that, I formed the opinion, not by myself, and certainly not alone, that we were in the developed world. We were heading into a very long-term cycle of low interest rates. So previously, there'd often been cycles where nominal rates or policy rates had dropped, um, though never quite this low um, for a long period of time. And my view was that we were facing a situation um, really that's quite similar to what happened in Japan um, off the back of the 80s, early 90s. Now, some of the mechanics of that are different. There are some quite important differences, but there are also some similarities. And, and so 
I, I've got no idea how long that will continue for, but certainly I think for the foreseeable future at the moment, my view would be we're, we're still looking at low policy Yeah, and, and this is maybe a little point of disagreement. I think there could, well, definitely, I mean, absolutely there is asset price inflation right now. So the, the reason we've got high um, house prices is, is simply inflation. It's just not the one that the Reserve Bank's looking at. So CPI, consumer price inflation, still dead as a doornail, going nowhere for the foreseeable future. But there is inflation everywhere. There's asset price inflation, people are paying $69 million for a GIF that is in a frame on a wall. Uh, sneakers are outrageously priced, gold's going off its chops. I mean, I just think, so what you are seeing is inflation. Yes. It's just not the one that we're looking at to measure. So in some respects, I think inflation is, is already here. It's, it's just, that CPI measurement is not going anywhere, which is interesting because, like, why has that, that split happened? That, that seems quite unbalanced in a way, in that it's, it's going to places that we're not measuring, so are we going to be able to assess the effect then? I mean, I, I, yeah, everybody's worried about it, right? This is actually probably the key moment, really, is, is you see all the pressure coming on the government. We need to solve the housing crisis. Why are we paying $1.7 million for the average house in certain parts of Auckland and... You know, why are we paying nearly a million dollars in Dunedin for it? You know, so there's a heap of political pressure right now, and it's all f fueled around this inflation, house price inflation. Um, so in some respects, it's, it's there, and they're fighting, they're grappling with... Um, yeah, so the government literally just gave the Reserve Bank the mandate to look at house prices as well. You know, and that's a, a significant shift in policy in New Zealand. Right, going right back to the sort of the emergence of the Public Finance Act in the 1990s, 89, I think it was. So, yeah, you're seeing some big policy shifts right now and some big question marks. I, I do think the whole modern frame of economics, monetarist economics, is there's a big question mark right now. Is this the best way to manage the economy? And I think this goes back to the point you made before, which is it's not even just about the the quantification of debt, but the enormous other changes that are feeding into the economy right now. And some of those are policy changes where what's become the way of managing, for example, um, unemployment effectively through, through monetary policy um, and other aspects of the economy, this has become the orthodoxy. New Zealand led the way in this, but it's the way the West is more or less run. And what we're seeing now is there's a real complexity in the economic effects, the social effects, the structural effects of the shock that we've experienced at COVID-19 that make it very difficult to predict even the policy environment that's about to eventuate. But that policy environment feeds very directly into the outcomes for these different kinds of debt and for the knock-on social impacts for that. And so we do see markets pricing in, you know, the bond market, I used to love watching bond prices um, shift in, in ways that reflected before equity markets did that there was a problem. Um, and you see, you know, Julian mentioned this the other day, that uh, bond markets have been selling off, government bond markets, indicating that there is a real expectation here of interest rates rising in the future. And, and so you have, you've seen them spike up to, what, 1.7%, mm, something like yeah. that, yeah. Which, and that, that's really interesting because then you get into the... Um, and there's a, a fantastic uh, bun fight between two really well-known economists in America, Larry Summers and um, Stiglitz, I think it is, or I think it's Stiglitz. I'm not Stiglitz sure, but, is one of them, yeah. but basically arguing over what's going to happen if interest rates start to go up. That's, I think that's a, a discussion as well about what the recovery looks like, and we will, we will get to that. I just want to return to something you said, Lyndon, in, in the way that um, you said New Zealand uh, treated issues like unemployment with monetary policy. Can you explain how we did that? So traditionally, and, and again, Julian may well um, speak to more of the detail on this, but traditionally um, monetary policy, and in particular the policy rate set by the central bank that then feeds on out into all other aspects of the economy. So eventually for those who are homeowners into the, the rates you pay for mortgage loans. Um, that may well have been set for political reasons and there are a number of people here in the room who will remember um, things around um, the uh, currency crises that tended to be um, a feature of that kind of setup as well because it became very difficult sometimes to separate the different needs. So the prevailing orthodoxy now is that um, central bank independence in setting that policy rate is a very important 
aspect of managing the economy. And on the whole, that seems to have worked really quite well in certain respects. So, if, I mean, if you go back before monetary, sort of this rise of monetary, monetarist economics, there was quite active labour market policies. The government would intervene, it would mop up unemployment. You saw, you know, the post office and the railways having 20,000 people. Um, and there were, you know, a lot of inefficiencies in that system. But the primary way of dealing with unemployment was for the government to assist in creating a job somewhere. Yeah, and then sort of through the reform period, all of that shifted and we said, no, we can't trust the government with that. They're very inefficient. And we, we saw that in New Zealand. You saw the railways managing parcels of land that they didn't actually own. So literally organising for pieces to be mowed. They had no ownership rights over that land. So there are heaps of inefficiencies. And, and where we got to was, hey, we can't trust politicians with this. What we can do is we can say to the Reserve Bank, um, if the economy's getting too strong, inflation's going up, because you, know, you saw um, horrible stagflation of the 70s where unemployment and inflation was going up, um, what we should do is just you know, stop that. And the way we stop it is to increase interest rates. So you can slow down the economy by increasing interest rates because it's just going to cost more money to run the economy with higher interest rates. And if you want to speed up the economy, you just lower the, the interest rate. And if you lower the interest rate, people will borrow more, firms will borrow more, and you'll start this. And so you mop up unemployment basically by letting the private market do it. When the government gets loaned money, how does it get paid back? If, I, if, if my wife's Dutch, so if she loans me money, I have to pay it back. How does... Um, Sorry, darling. And, um, and so when the government, oh, let's, just, let's just stick to the knitting. When the government borrows money, how does it pay it back? Well, this is a subject that was dear to my heart because I spent most of the Gordon Brown years in the UK um, listening to him announce his budgets along with his, in his very sort of doer tones, no more boom and bust, which shortly after he became prime minister, um, turned out there was quite a big bust, which most of you can recall. Um, and of course, when he came to issue the debt, he would ring up uh, me and other people, not personally, I never spoke to the guy on the phone. He had an office to do this kind of thing. And they would run an auction in which um, we and the banks would lend the money to the government and then we'd try and flog it off to other people. And I've brought with me um, a particular example of this. This is war loan. The British government has a policy, this was from the 1960s actually, which is a bit puzzling. Normally during wars, they take a very patriotic approach to being repaid um, on their debt, and they encourage their citizens to lend them money with no repayment date. And so I was still trading bonds that had been issued to finance the war against Napoleon, for example. Though they did, a couple of years back, finally pay that debt off, not because of any repayment reason, but there are certain technical reasons around the pricing that had made it very annoying to have in the market. So, strictly speaking, the government doesn't necessarily, I'm going to pass this round, the government doesn't necessarily feel super obliged to pay it back. And of course, numerous governments have in fact decided not to at various points. And I remember a colleague at Barclays who got very caught out at one stage by deciding that um, sovereign states never default on their debt. And this is complete ignorance of history. Sovereign states really quite frequently default on their debt and don't pay it back. Um, in fact, there was a debate, and I'm sorry for having a go at um, people from the Netherlands, um, but I'm going to anyway. It's open season at the so, moment, yeah. isn't it? Um, one of my colleagues from the Netherlands, when um, there was a bit of a crisis going on around Greek and Italian debt, um, because of course they don't have their own currency, it's much harder to, um, you know, to do things around debt repayment when you don't have control of the currency. Even worse, by the way, if you can't tax people in your, the currency your debts are nominated in. Anyway, he, he said, well, they, they must be compelled to pay it back. And I said, well, how are you going to compel the Greeks to, to repay the debt? They can, they're a sovereign country. And he said, well, but there will just be a war. And I said, I said, I thought, I, I said, but that's, that's not a very good social outcome. And he said, no, but we will win. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I don't think we're approaching, his argument was like the Greek army is just as bad as the Greek railway. And therefore, you, you need, I thought, oh, we're not approaching this from the same frame of reference. But there is an argument, you know, in the end, for most governments, for the New Zealand government, hey, we can just print money. And we can, well, yeah, we can print money. Yep, yep. So, I mean, there's, there, are, there are risks, right? So, yes, you can, you can roll over debt. Um, you can reissue more bonds. 
you know, just roll it over. And, and you, you could create a bond that had a 100-year payback, you know, that eventually, or like, say, 200 years later. Perpetual. Like, yeah, perpetual. You can, you can sell products that, that don't need to be paid back. But, I mean, generally speaking, you don't get, you don't get very far in life by not paying your debts. Like, eventually, someone comes knocking, and it's the repo man. Um, you know, the IMF might turn up on your doorstep and say, well, we're now going to change uh, your social policy. We're going to get rid of... Uh, your your public infrastructure. Actually, you know that whole socialised healthcare that you guys have. We might just um, we might just get rid of that and privatise it. So you open the door. You open the door to foreign influence, to foreign policy making, maybe to a war. Um, so there are reasons why you do pay back debt, and there's a reason why you don't let debt get out of control, and there's a reason why, you know, you generally try and meet your commitments. And part of that is interest rates. You know, if our, our international rating goes from a double A to a B, interest rates will go up. Everybody will start have to pay higher mortgage rates. You'll see mortgage rates, you'll see people defaulting on their loans probably because of the over-leverage that we are in New Zealand and the high house prices. So there'll be blood on the floor, basically. So there is a reason, yeah, can you, yes, technically, the Reserve Bank at the moment has got lots and lots and lots of um, government bonds. and. All they did was put some digital zeros into the treasury, and the treasury is spending those digital zeros and ones. They could just hold on to that money. They could just hold on to those bonds and say, you know what, in 100 years' time, thank you very much. We'll just let those slide away into nowhere land. Like that's possible, and that's only possible if that's New Zealand currency debt in New Zealand held by a government institution. If that debt gets unsold, it's highly unlikely that that will ever happen. So, so I mean, there's, yeah. Technically you can, but it's, it's not a, a highly desirable strategy. No. Partly because of what, um, the line of work I used to be in as a bond trader, known as the bond vigilantes, because the people who go and, um, and, and enforce the, 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 the sell-off tend to be people like me. Um, and so we were seen as, as both part of the process of issuing it, but also part of the problem once there was a perception that it had become too risky. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and the risks are great. And so hence Public Finance Act, hence a, whole, hence a whole section there that says prudence, you know, reasonable levels of debt, try and get down to zero debt, or not zero debt, but, you know, and, and so we have this social contract in New Zealand basically that says 30%. You know, prudent fiscal debt in New Zealand for a long time was 30% of GDP, yeah? That's, that's kind of made that's, up. That's changed. One, that, that's kind of made up, right? Yeah. Um, public perception. One way, though, to get out of debt is to have an economic recovery, and the IMF is forecasting some sort of bounce back uh, over the next year. Um, but there's lots of talk I hear about a K-shaped recovery. Can you explain that to me, Julian? Well, at one level, I just don't like the word at all. And so I'll say K-shaped recovery doesn't exist. And then at the same time, I'll say, but it doesn't exist entirely. So all it means is um, there's winners and losers. The sad thing is that there's always been winners and losers. It's just that the, the nature and the structure of the current crisis has exasperated some of those issues along structural lines. So you see uh, tourism sector being massively hit, yeah? Um, and who, who works in tourism jobs? What types of jobs are they? Uh, often they're um, women, often they're low paid, low skill jobs, and they've just taken a massive hit. So COVID hasn't walked up to women and say, oh, I'm gonna pick you and hurt you. It hasn't, it hasn't walked up to tourism and said, I pick you as a sector. It's just the nature of the structural, the structural side of it. But there's winners. I mean, some sectors of New Zealand have been going absolutely gangbusters. Best profit levels ever, more spa pools sold spa than pools before. Spa pools for Africa. Yep. Um, and often they're luxury goods. Did you notice that? Yep. So, you know, probably there's been more luxury cars sold recently than family sedans. I don't know. Um, but there is this, it's entrenching, sort of entrenching those winners and losers. And often it's about wealth, not income. And so this is another side to it. Um, that I don't think has been explained very well. But for example, what, how, what do you make of a tourist operator that's been operating in tourism for a few years that actually has got three houses, two of which they rent? Their asset wealth has gone massively up. Their tourism business has probably gone down. 
is that K-shaped or is that just something else? So there's a side to this which is um, it's not as simple, it's just sort of that cartoony K-shape, isn't it bad? Um, but there's real effects. Maybe Lyndon can jump yeah, in. Yeah, Lyndon, what's your, what's your, Julian sounds a bit agnostic, what's your position on the K-shape for Calvary? Well, I mean, I guess part of it is that in my setting, um, so I work um, primarily now as, as a church minister in a very poor part of Auckland amongst um, poor parishioners. And I think when you say it exacerbates existing effects, that is true to some degree, particularly for the wealthy, it exacerbates the growth in wealth. But I think one of the um, differences between a financial crisis, you know, where um, at a simplistic level, leverage around assets um, led to the thing. This is a very different kind of economic shock. And what it means is that some of the effects are highly unpredictable. The breakdown of the negative impacts is very different. So it affects different slices and parcels of society. What that means is that the, the mechanisms that we've built up over the last few decades, which are relatively good at mitigating other kinds of crises, such as a financial crisis, those mechanisms are not well aligned with the people who have been harmed the most at the moment. And at the same time, there's enormous difficulty in even acknowledging how those breakdowns have happened. So, for example, the Prime Minister um, was very happy to point out that unemployment has fallen. But actually, Maori and Pacific Island unemployment has gone up substantially and is now close to 10%. Um, but more than 10% in some areas. And so you're starting to see these things which are very politically difficult to acknowledge. For example, effects on housing. It's great if you're a homeowner. It's pretty bad news if you're a marginal renter and if you have um, housing tenure insecurity. It's been very good for motel owners as part of the tour. Again, you know, this, we say tourism. Motel owners um, are now heavily occupied as emergency housing, but it's not great for the people who are housed in there, and there's no political will to change the housing supply picture. So I actually feel that we're in a very, very risky situation because the policy responses that would be ideal are politically unattractive at the moment, actually even acknowledging the particular things that affect my people, those, that acknowledgement is very hard for the government to give at the moment. In fact, it's across the whole political, there's no political party at the moment that wants to acknowledge what is happening, and there is no political party at the moment that is really committed to, from my point of view, the things that would help my iwi, that would help my parishioners. Um, and so I feel I feel pretty depressed at the moment when I look at the policy there. So could, maybe could I jump in yeah. and just ask, like, give us two examples of things that you think might might help, just practical. Well, personally, so this will get me in trouble with some people in the Maori world, but I'd love it if we just ditched the RMA straight away and could expand housing supply substantially. Um, particularly if that was aligned with the ability for um, Maori land to be um, securitised in some sensible way which is impossible at the moment, so we can't actually build on most of the Maori land that, that exists. Um, and, and again, if there were ways to um, encourage the kinds of employment that align well for, for Maori, and I, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but I think those, and again, actually you're... Yeah, I mean, I'm a, so I'm a strong believer in active labour market policy, and, and so what I mean there is the government actively becoming involved in the labour market through education, skills, retraining... Um, and, and I just don't, so I, I published a paper recently on migration, for example, and highlighted just our huge over-reliance on temporary visas. I'm very pro-migration, very, very pro-immigration. Uh, I don't like the style of migration that we had that was temporary, 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 temporary. Uh, you've done your service, now just get, you can leave now. Um, and I think we, we, you know, we could devise something that says, What's the pipeline of skills we need for our infrastructure spend? Now let's upskill New Zealanders to fill those roles because we know there's going to be 10, 15, 20 years of work building this, this infrastructure that we need. So it's, but it's costly. It's going to be costly and it's not going to be a quick fix. We heard about a rise in inequality and this is, this is the section where we're discussing how this, uh, the, the, these debt-based responses, these fiscal responses to... Uh, to the COVID pandemic are reshaping society. Given that equality, inequality pardon me, is exacerbating, what policy might be on the horizon? Julian? Easy one to well, well, we could actually separate that in that what do you see on the horizon and what do you think is necessary? Oh, I mean, I, I see a whole lot more uncertainty on the horizon. 
I think that the current government has been focused on getting us this far. I do not think that there is a solid plan for the next 12 months or two years. Um, so my own view is that they've been so focused on the crisis that they don't have a solid plan going forward. So I think you will see some, um, I mean, you never let a good crisis go to, to waste, right? So I do think that there will be policy pressure in the next year. Uh, the, you already see a lot of policy pressure around benefits and the government has been very reluctant to move on core benefit rates. Um, so I think you'll see more pressure and more pressure on that. I, I think that the, the government's um, support is, there's certain sections of support inside uh, the Labour government which will be saying we want to see some wins on the board for um, our members. Um, and so I think you will see collective bargaining multi-employer contracts starting to come in. Um, you'll see this tripartite forum, some of their findings starting to roll out. What's um, the, for those who don't know, what's the oh, tripartite, tripartite forum? Tripartite forum is, is uh, business and unions and the government working together to solve policy issues. And so they, they have been meeting, a tripartite forum has been moving forward for a long time, last year and a half. So I think you will see pressure. Uh, it's a lot of labor market pressure, I think, coming on. So you've seen this already, you've seen um, wages increasing, you've seen um, minimum wages increasing. I think we've seen the spike of those pushes, but I, I think there'll be follow-on effects. Um, I think another thing we will see is just supply, cr supply chains groaning mm. the world over. They're already groaning. They are. You can't buy an Xbox in this country. It's really sad. Um, much to my wife's absolute enjoyment you can't buy an xbox in this country um so yeah i mean Sorry, i think Ju julia i don't think anyone will come to your pity party uh, they should they should um thankfully you can get a ps5 though oh no no you can't yes, trust me uh i mean so there's lots of i think actually there's lots of issues and i think you see that with a lot of the reports that are coming out of the reserve bank and the government at the moment uh, the ocr stayed at 0.25 simply because of risk i think that it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. The government is, I think, being prudent. Um, it's holding some of its money back. It's holding some of its policy choices back simply because it doesn't know the future. And it's saying this crisis has been so unpredictable, we need some gunpowder left behind. And I mean, I, I kind of applaud that. I, I applaud a sense of prudence um, simply because it's so hard to predict. I don't, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, maybe Lyndon can jump in. Well, actually, I'm interested in, you're talking about unpredictability. You're talking about um, uncertainty over whether governments can act. And I know that in, in conversations we've had before this, Lyndon, you t you've, uh, you've been looking into how pandemics reshape societies. And this is th these are other measures in how our society is being reshaped. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Well, I think one of the things... I mean, obviously pandemics don't happen super frequently, especially not global ones. And so it's a little bit hard sometimes to draw conclusions from what has happened in the past. But there does seem to be some degree in which the way in which the social disruption plays out actually has an interaction with the purely mathematical economics of repaying debt and so forth. And it's particularly what you've seen happening where people who are asset holders becoming significantly more wealthy, that tends to have bad social outcomes in the long run. Mainly because the larger number of people who didn't get wealthy and are feeling a bit stink about that, um, sometimes this boils over. Now, you know, it doesn't always end up in guillotines. Um, I've got a really good quote. Keep going. Go, no, no, go for it. <laughs> You can't leave them hanging. No. Oh, uh, Minister of Finance, 1920s, uh, Russian Minister of Finance, uh, said inflation is the machine gun of the proletariat that will mow down the uh, moneyed classes. There we go. So there you go. Yeah, well, I mean, see, inflation is actually, if you're indebted, inflation of the right sort can be extremely helpful. But I think this, the, the uncertainty, the risk that this produces, the kind of social upheaval that actually produces a real breakdown um, is something that ought to be considered quite seriously. And un unlike um, my friend Julian, I, I actually, I wish the government were actually a bit less prudent because we're sitting in an enormously, um, we've got a lot of gunpowder. And I kind of feel like 
um, we're facing a situation where we could actually use some of that, that gunpowder. And maybe the, the illustration is helpful because, you know, the gunpowder gets put to use other, other uses in the long run when you don't put it to uh, a happy use to get some fires started in the, in the meantime. So, I, I mean, you look at policy responses that could happen, things that do seem to have some degree of benefit what's happening in the US with stimulus checks going directly to people. Um, obviously this encourages consumption. There are negative effects to that if that goes too far. Um, I mean, you can do other things in a, in a uh, fiscal expansion. There's that guy, was it Azerbaijan or I forget which one, the dictator spent a really large amount of money building an enormous statue of himself. Now, that is infrastructure of a kind, I guess, but, but I'm not sure it has the knock-on social effects that you'd really be looking for. So, I mean, the government's announced infrastructure spending. It's actually only 1.8 billion of, of significant spending. It's, it, to me, that's a drop in the bucket. We actually have, by and large, a pretty socialist government. For once, despite the fact I'm pretty right-wing, I'd really like them to pretend to be socialist for a bit. Um, just have some appetite for this would be yeah. my, my thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say they're probably fairly conservative, actually. And, yeah, they are. And yeah. Which, which is interesting because that's not always a bad thing. But I know. Oh, in general, it's a really good thing, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, uh, for me, a big thing is education. I think what we are going to see is a huge amount of education scarring. There are, there are swathes of... Uh, New Zealand children who have been struggling through the education system because of the crisis um, and their education outcomes are likely to be negatively affected. So one thing we should be doing right now I think is investing in that infrastructure in some way shape or form. I do not have a direct policy, I mean it's just not my field of expertise but I do know that that's, we, we just need to start doing that. I think there is an opportunity here to start pivoting towards some environmental solutions um, if we're going to choose areas to get into. But I really I mean, one of my big things is we need to invest in people as much as bridges. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not such a huge fan of the helicopter money, give, um, you know, giving everybody $1,500 US or whatever. Don't they just buy um, a bunch of TVs or something like that? Oh, it depends. I mean, you can design it in better ways. You can give people vouchers, which they have to spend. You can't, you can't go to your bank and say, here's my voucher to put it off my mortgage. Um, so there's ways of designing things that are better, but um, yeah, I mean, we've got huge infrastructure problems, right? When we've had them for a while. We've had hospitals that are creaking and groaning. We've had a, a range of things which actually, you know, even Treasury before the crisis was saying, why, why 30? You know, I think we could go to 40 and we'd be fine. You know, um, sort of developed countries, the average debt loading for core crown good, I think is 98%, and we're sitting at 30. So there is, I think there is some headroom here but also let's let's just not run around like chickens as well um you know let's let's think about this deeply before we do it in terms of the worst case scenario crashes what do historical precedents tell us about crashes they're bad yeah i mean we've put a maybe there's that graph i did that graph did that graph earlier that's kind of fun um i don't know if they can come up so, I mean, this is uh, GDP in New Zealand going back to, what, um, 1960? You can see the good years, right? The good years are actually, you know, and what we see is we actually see a series of, a series of shocks. And I think what you can see over time is that these shocks are becoming steeper and more pronounced. And I think this is to do with leverage, with global markets, that we're now way more interconnected. We haven't got the latest one on there. The data's not available uh, publicly for me to just grab. But it's gonna, if it does happen, it's going to be big and it's going to be nasty. Um, so, and it hasn't happened yet. Like, in some respects, all of what we've been talking about is simply because people decided to be creative. Two, two years ago, if, if you had said to a Reserve Bank official, we're going to spend $100 billion buying bonds in two years' time, they would look at you like you're a loon. Yeah. So all of this is emergent policy, and all of it is like trying something new without fully knowing the consequences. Well, and I was thinking this comes back as well to where you were starting, which is while public sector debt in this country is not in a problematic level, private sector debt here is catastrophically risky. And, and these kind of shocks um, have a very, very unfortunate outcome. And so say in Mangu, where I have my day-to-day -day work, the only nice shops in the Māori shopping centre are payday lenders. Now, 
a lot of that private indebtedness is not a little bit of extra money on the mortgage, you know, because you wanted to buy a boat, even though that's actually not great lending to do either. Um, you, there's a pretty strong argument that a lot of the mortgage debt, even just to own a house, is not particularly great. There's, there's bad outcomes typically around this, as we saw in the, the GFC, around what happens if um, that starts to be called in, because um, unlike the government, I don't have the ability to refuse the bank when they want the money repaid. Interest rates go up at the same time, and you start, you know, the, the thing can really spiral down badly. But the people who are most affected in that are those who have taken out loans. In South Auckland, it's particularly to pay for funerals and so forth, um, and that level of indebtedness is an extremely significant risk for the country, and again, it plays back into all those other factors that we talked about. So, I mean, I looked at the numbers. I, I mean, um, New Zealand's private debt is 175% of GDP. Yeah, how does that compare to the government's 30%? That's just massively different, right? And so if you just, if you take out financial institutions and it's just, just purely household debt, it's at 94% of GDP. So actually, there's an order of magnitude here where households are exposed. And so um, one way of thinking about debt overall is it just has to, like debt exists. Your envelope of debt exists. If you've got this part of it as government and that's low, you are likely to balloon out on the private side. And so there is this debate to be had around the debt envelope saying, well, what's a good social risk here and what's a good private risk? And what we've seen is the government being incredibly fiscally responsible to a point where it's, it's points, I would, you could argue it's placing some of the burden on private households. And you see that in some of these communities where to pay for funerals, they're having to, to go to private loans and that's, that's not a great place for our society to be. And, and so there are some big questions there around the total debt envelope and where that is, is placed. Given the size of, of private debt in New Zealand, what should we do? Like, should we try and get that down? Is, is, there, is, is there some strategy? I mean, I'm thinking personally, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to frame this provocatively, but um, should, should I buy another house? Should I buy a Banksy? Should I buy gold? What's the response? Who are you interested in helping? Yourself? Or are you interested in helping a community? Or a family? So there's different responses, right, depending on your, where you frame and locate yourself in New Zealand today. Um, if, you're, if you're interested just in you, I would say go buy some gold. You know, it's, it, it doesn't rust. Moths don't eat it. When everything goes to absolute rubbish, you've got some gold, right? You know, I, actually, it was before the pandemic hit. It was, what, December last year? No, just... I mean, I sent out a thing at work saying, you know, oh, I'm feeling a bit dodgy about the world economy. Uh, maybe if you've got assets, go buy some gold. Um, but that doesn't serve communities. That doesn't serve people. Um, it's so, yeah, Lyndon. So, yeah, to, so to serve communities, what do we do? Well, as individuals, there's a lot of these come back to systemic problems, though. And I don't think there's a huge amount that, as individuals, we can um, do with our financial choices that make a big difference. I do think buying gold is a particularly socially unproductive thing to do. Um, and actually, the, when you look back over the price history, it often doesn't actually work out particularly well. Um, so so there, are other, there are other assets you could do. Now, I need to be very careful not to stray into FMA-regulated territory and start giving is, financial this advice. This is a discussion this is not I'm deeply tempted not, to. It's not a financial advice session. Yes, that's right. So there are asset classes which will remain unnamed, which would be very interesting to get involved in at a personal level. But I think actually there's something here more about how do we function collectively, and especially those of us who have influence or who can work together, who can speak into the policy space, which is why I'm so thankful for Maxim and its voice um, into that space, to say actually there is, this is a point where real courage is needed in the policy um, side of things, is to look at things and, and not go back to the playbook that has served so well in many ways for a long period. I mean, you look at the chart before. Actually, there's a lot of growth there, some nasty shocks, but it was a big time of growth. But I think that playbook might no longer be as useful as, as it was because the changes that have kicked in because of COVID-19 um, have shifted things in very significant ways. Um, and so I think there's, there's much more here about how do we function as a society to choose collectively around policy responses. Now, some of our larger institutions, some of our wealthier people and individuals, they do have the firepower to make an impact in particular ways. And so, for example, being the agent for an increase in housing supply or being, I mean, I've seen, in, you, you know, you mentioned the education side of it. Over in Point England, um, Glenys, I grew up in Panmure, um, and have never had any desire to go back there. But um, what I saw was, well, it's a bit of a hole. And um, 
there's a, a school principal there, um, Russell Burt, who established the first school cluster, Manaya Kalani. What they did was they installed infrastructure around Glen Innes and Point England so that there was Wi-Fi that was only usable by the school children, raised private funding, which meant that every child in those schools um, has a device at home. Now you compare that to most schools in South Auckland, um, where even if you have a device, you've got no internet access. And so this whole idea that you were doing school during the lockdowns was a complete nonsense. And that then played out subsequently because a bunch of people had had their jobs deleted. Um, there was one secondary school principal in South Auckland, I won't say which one it was, 40% of his role did not come back after the first lockdown. Yes. All right? So what happened then, can you think of it? 40%, okay? Now, those kinds of things are not going to play out well over the next few years. Those kids are not going to magically get better. There's no tutor coming to their rescue. So these infrastructure issues, we're not talking here about a bridge or a road, but it's still infrastructure that means that the poorest children are the ones who have been harmed the most during this. Now, I know there is, co so, I mean, I deal with the complex social situations, but it's not the kids who decided to be in those situations. And so I think there's, there's something here around trying to engage well around those. And what struck me in, in Glen Innes Point, England, was this was a combination of some policy stuff, um, but also um, individuals, you know, largely some wealthy individuals doing something. And it, it's sort of caught on, but it hasn't really spread. So it's only an example, but there, there's an interplay here that can happen. Okay, and just, just as, a, as a side note, um, Maxim uh, Institute will be looking into uh, predatory lending and the history of predatory lending in New Zealand. There have been some initiatives from the current government. We want to see just whether they're effective, and uh, we have a, a new researcher, Ala Dio, but this is something that we are on top of. Thank you. Okay, first question of the evening uh, from the floor. Is the government printing money going to result in a massive transfer of wealth by stealth? Lyndon. Well, <laughs> the answer is it depends <laughs> a little bit on exactly what happens with it. Um, it could do, um, and in fact that might be seen as one possible desirable outcome for um, printing money. So rather than, for example, the French Revolution obviously took a lot of wealth off some people and gave it to others, but it wasn't a particularly fun process for the people who lost the wealth. Um, money printing as a way of transferring uh, wealth from those who are asset holders to those who are indebted um, can be a more palatable version of achieving some kinds of the same outcomes. Um, but there are other ways, of, there are a whole bunch of different ways. Printing money means a bunch of different things. And, and very, it very much depends what you do with the money that you've printed. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it's so stealthy, to be honest. I mean, people with, with wealth at the moment have probably seen their assets increase, um, and that's intentional. Um, it's sort of better the house price inflation that you know than the crash you don't. It's that policy of least regrets that the, the Reserve Bank and Treasury are basically operating on is we'll do it because will regret not doing it probably more. And it's not necessarily the best policy way of doing it. I just don't think it's that stealthy. It's, no, it's, no, it's yeah, not yeah, at all. Yeah. No. No. And I mean, there are other ways of looking at the whole challenge as well, which um, you know, would be thinking about the voluntary aspect of it. I, I just don't think it's the defining feature of what's going on with monetary policy. You mentioned earlier, Julian, the political unwillingness to make useful policy. Do you have ideas of what could encourage gov the government uh, to do so, or different ways of making policies such as citizens' assemblies? How might, how might we encourage the government to make useful policy? Imagine you're the Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here. While Julian gets his courage up, I'd say one thing that really tends to provoke governments to act is fear of being voted out. So I would say a credible opposition is a really important step. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry if there's anyone who's too deeply involved in the National Party, but you know, that would actually be one really great help. I mean, honestly, if you get called up on the phone in a focus group, like, be brutally honest, because um, I think there's a lot of focus groups going on trying to work out whether or not the next election can be won. And um, yeah, which is really sad in some respects. Um, this is a majority government in a MMP situation. I mean, this, is, this doesn't happen very often, right? The situation we're in right now doesn't happen very often. 
And um, in some respects, there is a fear of losing the next election. I mean, I like prudence. Make noise. Make lots of noise if you think you've got a good idea. What, what do you think is, is, is the, the, we call it um, timidity perhaps, is in, in government? Is it just based on, on, on a political fear of losing? Because if there's not a credible opposition, it's part of that, there's but an you, unlikely You also, I mean, and maybe I'll speak off the cuff here and I'll get told off later, who knows. I mean, you saw a party in the 80s, the Labour Party in the 80s, that made quite radical reform, very radical reform. And there were a whole lot of unintended consequences from those reforms that they weren't really cognizant of. So I think there is a deep-seated understanding now within the party that change can make things worse off. If you do make things worse off, you end up getting voted out, and then the opposition party can do whatever they want. And so there is, I think there is a bit of history that comes into this. That, and, and there's some wisdom to that, actually, that you know, radical policy change often has unintended consequences. Um, balancing that, though, is how do, we, how do we treat the most vulnerable in New Zealand today? And so there's always this balancing that's going on between who do we want to help and what's the best way. And I think at the moment the, the balance is leaning towards stability and not so much on the who are the most vulnerable that we want to help. And so, yeah. See, I, I think this has got less to do with um, a particular political culture and I think it's got something more to do, in my view, and I'm going to annoy probably most of you in the room by saying this, okay? And it's because what, one of the things I loved about working in the UK was um, the meritocracy of ideas, the entrepreneurial place it was, the fact that you could you could actually get stuff done there. And coming back to New Zealand is this crippling sense that we do not like entrepreneurial thought. We, we're just not willing to think about change in the same way as, as English people are. And what's weird is that's not the narrative that we tell ourselves as Kiwis. But I've lived in both worlds, and I'm telling you, that is a big, big difference here. And Which is, I mean, it's interesting because I would say the public service was incredibly nimble. And when you look at around the world, the pot, like, 1.9 billion trillion dollars in the US, but it's only coming out now. Sure. Like in New Zealand, we had COVID income relief payment, we had wage subsidies all within weeks, which Crisis is responses, incredibly yes. quick, right? For the public service, they were practically dancing around like fairy. I mean, it was amazing. You could apply online um, and you could it do was, stuff. Yeah. Yep. So, but you're talking about, I'm talking about private, systemic stuff, though. Uh, right, private yeah. entrepreneurial culture well, doesn't really exist. I mean, it does in the sense that individual entrepreneurs are all around the place, right? Yeah. But this sort of systemic entrepreneurialism about a, a real reform, and I think this is where you know, people have gone, Labor's good in a crisis, but they're not good at change. Well, I actually think it's, it's a slightly deeper thing, which is that some of the structural changes we find very hard to, yeah. to enact. It's also, I th I, so in reflecting on what you're saying, I would also argue that there's a fear of opening up policy to entrepreneurs. Yes. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I've spoken publicly about this in another forum. I mean, I think the way the government acted in the first week of the pandemic, fantastic. But we're a year in now. There's a whole lot of people out there who've got amazing ideas, who do this for a living, and they could be speaking into these policy areas. And that, that's the bit that I'm, I'm sort of like, you know what, actually the time has come to open up the doors to entrepreneurs more and more. Like listen, engage in the policy issues. They've got brilliant ideas. The public service doesn't have the monopoly on good ideas. Yeah, and I think we, we see this particularly when you, if you say, Maori are overrepresented in the needs side of things, then the fact that in the first week of stimulus, um, more, was, um, more fiscal expansion happened than through the entire treaty claims process. It, you know, it's not even necessarily entrepreneurial in one sense, but you could simply commit a bit more to, to Maori to come up with solutions within that world. And that, that would be something that I think would be politically quite attractive in many ways. But, but it, it's, it still frustrates me a bit that those ideas and, and many, many others can't gain enough currency in our, in our setting. There's just a risk aversion there for me. So how do we change the risk aversion? We're in a time of massive risks, possibly, um, possibly unprecedented social, a lack of social cohesion. The risks are higher than, than they've ever been. What do we do to pull the lever to change that culture? 
I honestly, I, I feel like I don't have much idea. I mean, I'd quite like to, even though I have no particular background on it, I'd love to take over, um, you know, running a big policy area for the government. <laughs> but I'd say the chance of that are extremely low and, and possibly might lead to some of the unforeseen consequences that my friend was talking about. So yeah, it might mean, not even be a good idea. It's, I mean, it's interesting because I do, I mean, I'm based in Wellington. I hang out in policy environments. I, you know, go to soccer at the weekend and there's an MB official and a treasury official and a somebody else official. And um, the public conversation is actually really important. So you do hear back through the policy loops. Um, often, at, for example, with, with the work we do, we'll go into an environment, we'll make a case for something. The politician is like, no, 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 no. The officials are like, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking, please, please, please. There's, Pressure needs to come from the public service. It needs to come from our social institutions. If you're involved in a social institution, a bowling club, make some noise. Get into the public debate. Yeah, write a letter to your editor. You know, don't, don't go completely crazy, maybe. But you know, get actually involved in the public debate on these things because I think as pressure is applied from multiple angles, the focus groups start to change. And so I'd say make some noise. All right, we're coming. We're coming to the end of this, and um, I, I would I would like to ask ask you to sort of summarise it. If this, if all of this that we've been describing, and and we're talking about a, a whole lot of bad news that possibly might produce some good news, I want you to think about what that goodness might look like. So given that we say, well, we don't waste a crisis, if the crisis goes unwasted, paint a picture of what a better New Zealand might look like at the other end of this. Oh, well, I mean, if, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to speak here as, as a, a church minister and, and somebody who's also got a real interest in the theological approach to some of this. And um, in the Christian tradition, debt is, and, and this comes from um, some of the scriptural reflection on this, debt is typically seen as something which creates um, a divided allegiance for you. Um, and so in the Christian tradition, your allegiance should be directed towards God. Um, and it, even in a secular setting, we can see that play out. So there are power dynamics that arise from people being overly indebted that constrain and cripple their choices, that direct them down pathways that can be deeply damaging. And so for me, one of the things I'd love to see happen is, is for people to be freed up from that sense of being placed um, under compulsion, of having their choices and their economic freedom and their social freedom so deeply constrained by the fact that their allegiance has now been tied into somebody, um, often as very socially harmful setting in my, from my point of view. And so I've tried to be open there that this is informed by my beliefs as a, as a, as a Christian and as a, somebody who wants to one day become a theologian around this. But actually, I think you can see it in a secular setting, that once, once your loyalty in your life is tied into a payday lender, for example, um, or even in the middle class setting, when so much of our energy is tied into, how much can I borrow against the house? And, and all my, my mind is directed towards that, or how can I leverage up around assets and so forth? It actually changes the way that we think about society, our interactions, it controls us to a particular way. So I would actually love to see a shift, to some degree at least, away from private sector debt. Um, but but I'm, I'm trying to be open and say that's actually, you might not agree with my presuppositions on that. Mm. And I, I do think that there is something long term here that we need to think about when it comes to um, that 30%. And what might we productively invest in for the future of New Zealand? This is the 30% um, government debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that actually, you know, sometimes was it amazing that we had low debt? Should we be praising previous governments for enabling us to be in the position that we're in? Yes, but also right now with really low interest rates, now is the time to invest, um, I would say. Um, let's, let's look at our hospital infrastructure. Let's look at some of the bottlenecks that we have. Uh, let's really look at, really close look at education policy because we can, and, and this is the thing, every, I don't know if you ever look at government policy papers, but every single one of them says build back better, the triple B, and um, actually I don't think they're going to. I think it's rhetoric. I think it's a lot of um, how can we 
comms this really well, I actually think we need to start thinking about how do we build back better. And that might mean slightly higher taxes. That might mean that I say, you know what, I'm prepared to pay 3% more if it will enable a whole range of things in the social environment. So there is a rebalancing and a, and a thinking through of individual responsibility and that collective responsibility. Okay, a rebalancing um, and perhaps a reevaluation of our relationship to uh, material goods and material desires. Um, and also, I would say a challenge to all of us here and, and you in the audience about engagement in the political process and the desire to agitate for change that is better, change that you believe will improve our country, change that will improve the lot of those who are probably suffering the most from the situation. Uh, on, that, on that challenge, uh, on that note, I'd like to end things. Um, oh, could you please put your hands together for Lyndon and Julian? Now, if you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. That's www.maxim.org.nz. Thanks again for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Matewa. Goodbye for now.